G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. I think most people would agree that society's approach to mental health is, well, healthier than it was in the past. The stiff upper lip, suck it up, be a man mentality has been replaced by a more open and accepting conversation around depression, anxiety, and trauma. However, this evolution has brought with it some troubling consequences. An unhealthy ennoblement of victimhood, difficulty instilling resilience in young people, and a fear of uncomfortable truths that need to be spoken. It raises the question, has Australia become a fragile nation? To help me answer that question, I'm joined by psychiatrist, journalist, and author of Fragile Nation, Vulnerability, Resilience, and Victimhood, Tanvir Ahmed. Tanvir, welcome to Australiana. Oh, great to be with you, mate. I'd be remiss if I didn't start a conversation with a psychiatrist by asking about their childhood. Look, it's a fair question in terms of why did I become a psychiatrist? And psychiatrists are known for being, to some extent, the rebels of medicine. They're usually people in medicine on the outer a little. They often feel like they don't quite belong uh, in the more traditional areas like, you know, surgery or most of the things that what's called physicians like cardiologists or, you know, kidney specialists, whatever it might be. So you do tend to be a little bit different and that's often quite positive. You often get quite interesting people in psychiatry. In in terms of um, what you referred to about childhood, the average person who becomes a psychiatrist in medicine, they tend to have a few things in common. So one, they're very interested in stories. So here you are on a podcast. So it has a lot of overlaps with journalism. So a lot of psychiatrists are interested in the arts because they're interested in meanings and myths and stories because it's all about bigger meanings. The other thing about psychiatrists and surgeons often sort of joke about psychiatrists that they're not terribly decisive, everything's grey, and that's true, you know, compared to sort of black and white things like taking something out of your body, like cutting something out. Psychiatry is hugely grey. Every aspect of it is, is, if not vague, it's not definitive. So it often requires people who are comfortable with that, where nothing's quite definitive, there's no absolutes, and you have to be quite comfortable with this unease and uncertainty. And it has huge overlaps with the humanities, if you like, stories, you know, literature, anthropology, spirituality, religion, all these kinds of things. So that's mm. partly why I was interested in that, in that arena. I want to pick up on one word that you said there, which is was that psychiatry attracts outsiders. You were born in Bangladesh. You migrated to Australia as a young child. You grew up in a migrant family in the western suburbs of Sydney. How did that part of your childhood influence how you see the world today? Yeah, mate, great question, uh, Will. Yeah, it's funny. Look, I mean, look, Australia's full of, Australia and, and the US for that matter, you know, large parts of the Western world are full of immigrants and children of immigrants. And that does present a channel challenge because you're trying to, I guess you're trying to work out what parts of your past you keep and what aspects of your new culture that you embrace. And it is a tough balance because some people go too far the other way and then it's almost like your identity is a little bit shaky. That That's what I've noticed. So it's almost like you've got to find a happy balance between your parents' traditions, your past, 
as well as embracing the present. So, so for me, in some ways, I had an added dimension because my family were arguably, if not outsiders, they were a little bit different within our community because they weren't terribly religious. You know, one of the things I write, have written about before, Will, is how through, especially 10, 20 years ago, around arguments around terrorism and debates around that, I talk about how many communities, Muslim communities, would become almost more religious. They'd become more religious after having migrated. So many of the kids like me who grew up in places like Sydney and other parts of the Western world, they often became more religious in it while growing up as a part of asserting a type of identity. So they felt they didn't belong, and this was the arena that they felt they did belong. See, I could observe that, but I didn't. I wasn't able to embrace it, in part because my parents were never terribly religious, and look for a whole range of reasons. So in that respect, I guess I've always felt like an outsider, where whether it's in my ethnic community, uh, to some extent in medicine, and, and and that's the classic story will for people who become writers. You know, like I'm a I'm a writer. And as a writer, you're sort of always an observer. So it's not atypical that I've often felt like an outsider, regardless of what arena I'm in, professional, social, ethnic group, etc. You said that you were writing about Islamic fundamentalism, say, 10 to 20 years ago. It gets me thinking, I don't think we actually think about this as much or we don't hear about it as much as we did, say, 10 to 20 years ago in the early 2000s and the 2010s. Has Islamic fundamentalism become less of a problem or are there other reasons it's receiving less attention than it once did? Overall, it's probably become slightly less of a problem, in part due to enforcement. Also, I think many Islamic communities, there's a lot more stigma around it and they don't necessarily see it. Uh, if you grow up, don't necessarily see it as a terribly attractive option, which is a good thing. So in many look, in some respects, we've been quite successful. And that's just not in Western communities. That's also in Islamic communities around the world. If you see terrorism as a type of social protest, I think the prestige of that has receded very significantly, which is a good thing. And, you know, our governments deserve credit, as do a lot of, you know, governments and communities right around the world. So in that respect, it's very positive. But the broader theme of Islamic terrorism is identity politics. And it's about identity. It's about resentment, the politics of resentment, of grievance, of of trying to almost fight for status around being marginalised, that kind of stuff. So those broader trends are far from having receded. So in some ways, Islamic terrorism was a prelude to some of the wider themes. You know, it was a very major, especially, what's the word, I guess a violent or very visible form of identity politics. But that aspect of identity politics has not receded in any form at all. If anything, it's 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 magnifying, it's it's exploding in, in an even bigger way. This is this is really interesting. And I want to quote a, a little snippet from Fragile Nation on this point. You said modern ideologies such as communism and Islamism have their roots in the denial of the individual and in turn the significance of any private psychological realm. 
modern identity politics with its focus on the section of the community who are constructed as broadly vulnerable and encouraged to wear their ties to their group as political armour are derived from similar thinking. So my, my question is, how would you assess the dangers of identity politics in comparison to those ideologies that that, that you, you mentioned in the book? Yeah, I guess, I guess that, I mean, as you just read out, you know, a fundamental thing is the denial of the individual, the denial of individual responsibility. So even, you know, the moral dimension is there's a projection of all types of distress. So I feel a level of pain. I feel a degree of distress. Automatically, that's projected to the outside. That's got nothing to do with me as an individual. That's to do with social structures. It's to do with power structures outside, whether it's government or society, whatever it may be. And and that's a very dangerous position. Suddenly, what any individual does, especially if you're deemed to be of a you know, of a so-called marginalized group, you're just not responsible anymore. And and that's a that potentially that has huge implications for the day-to-day, you know, sort of function of, of society. So at a deeper level, that's what identity politics the implications of identity politics are that individual responsibility, that what I do, how I conduct myself, and how that affects other people, that whole realm is diminished. And then you you have a very different society where the boundaries and rules of interaction and the meanings of human communities are suddenly you know, very different and, and dangerously different. This is really interesting. We had a conversation with philosopher Susan Nyman. That'll be out by the time that this conversation comes out. One thing that she said in that interview was, we need to focus less on the victims of history and more on the heroes of history. The reason she said for that was, whilst, yes, we do need to remember victims, we need to restore them in some respect, by focusing overwhelmingly on victims, we overlook the concept of agency, which is what I think you were getting at there. My, my question is, what is the, the, there is obviously a lure to framing oneself as a victim today. There is, there is, there is, a, there is a, a psychological appeal, it seems, to saying I'm part of a victimized group. What is behind that appeal of victimhood for so many people? Yeah, look, great question. And I think there are a bunch of trends. So, you know, part of identity politics is you're essentially competing for status in in the public realm. And and the competition is about grievance. And it is about, okay, I have I have higher level of grievances, or I have an historical injustice. So people are almost competing over what level of historical injustice do I have? And as soon as you can claim that or argue that then you can demand some sort of privilege. So, so that's very attractive. So hence, we do have almost a public sphere where people are competing for different types of grievance and historical disadvantage. 30 so years like, ago, we were competing for around status for who had the kind of best sports car or who had the bigger house. Yes. Well, look, that's still <laughs> how, there. How has that changed? Well, to be honest, you can have both. So, I mean, the people who are proclaiming their pain you know, soon after their proclamation of pain and, you know, acquiring a degree of status, I mean, they'll also pursue the sports cars and the flash house, I suspect. That's the reality. But there's a whole bunch of other trends, and, and you will know through the book where I touch on, that have left us in this 
you know, the, mental health is a very powerful way to think of the culture, especially as we become in a more less religious, secular society. The language of psychology is increasing is increasingly the language of human experience. And beyond beyond it being the language of human experience, it's also the language of morality to some degree, of values and morality. Often often the language of psychology also overlaps with that. Some wider trends that have happened in society is we have the subjective experience has been elevated. And this overlaps a lot with mental health. So suddenly I guess how you feel, you know, at a very simplistic level, feelings have been elevated. And sometimes that clashes with what might be called objective truth. You know, the notion of objective truth has been depicted as a kind of harsh, almost masculine trend, if you like. And as a result, it's been diminished. With my truth coming to the fore. Exactly, yeah. And there's almost, yeah, there is a gender component to that, I think. There's almost a feminized component to this is how I feel. And when you say feminized, it doesn't always mean women. It's more a trend. You know, men can also have feminized expressions, if you like. So, so there is a broader trend in the public sphere of a lesser threshold for something to be deemed harmful, a wider importance on feelings and the subjective experience, especially if you're deemed to be from a marginalized group. And not just deemed, if you can convince others from a marginalised groups, you know, that acquires status. And then there's this whole notion of sensitivity of harm. And in terms of political philosophy, it's very interesting because you think of the, you know, your listeners will be very familiar with the John Stuart Mill idea of, you know, freedom should extend to the point where your actions commit harm to the to others and then it should stop. Now, he would never have considered the notion of psychological harm, yet that's become a very major thing in the last decade or two in our society where the very, if not obscure, but quite a grey arena of when somebody might be harmed psychologically, especially in diverse societies, you can, I mean, any comment you make, you know, someone's likely to get offended by. So that's really changed the nature of public discourse where there's constant tension of free speech, objective truth versus psychological harm. And that notion of psychological harm is really, I think it's it's limited all types of modern discussion. There's a few, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So I want to take a few of those themes in turn. First is that concept creep that you mentioned around how we think about notions of trauma and harm. So concept of harm was, and trauma, was initially construed very seriously and very narrowly, but Mm. in more recent times, it's expanded to cover all manner of agitations in our daily life. What what are the consequences of that shift? No, you're exactly right, Will. And um, I said in my work too, where I'm often kind of challenging people. One of my, one of my jobs, I guess, is often doing reports around compensation claims and it is fascinating to see the change and and it's something I've spoken to about older colleagues you know who've worked for many decades and they see it they see the huge change where suddenly just merely having a perception that you've been harmed psychologically so somebody says something or does something or sends an email whatever it might be and historically 
there would have been a certain standard that this is an acceptable reaction to whatever incident, whereas now that is almost shifted, if not entirely, to a significant extent, that if someone perceives something as harmful, that is some sort of truth. Like automatically that they're like, okay, well, you know, they, they, they thought it. It's their truth, as you say. And that changes the dynamics very significantly and dangerously so. And, and we see it all the time, you know, whether it's Me Too or a whole range of cultural tens where perceptions have become more important than ob- objective reality. Mm. And is that because, I guess, psychological harm by its very nature is more difficult to see and to diagnose than physical harm? Breaking your arm, for example, is is something which everyone can agree has happened or not happened. It's much harder to be able to, I imagine, diagnose and, and see psychological conditions. Uh, look, absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is one of the issues where because you, it's harder to measure, harder to quantify and harder to be definitive about, there's a lot more room to exploit it. And I think that's what, what's happening now. Often, often the ideas around psychology and psychiatry and mental health they will have a big they will have a significant academic depth but they seem especially prone to be exploited in the public realm especially this notion of psychological harm where as soon as there's a difficult debate so increasingly mental health is often used as a way of avoiding scrutiny often used as a way of trying to avoid difficult debates and and people exploit it essentially people and groups exploit it as a way of trying to uh, limit scrutiny and a way of stopping and a way of avoiding taking responsibility for your actions. There's a very interesting character that pops up in your book who repeatedly cheats on his wife and he comes to you looking for some form of a psychological diagnosis for this behaviour where most people, I think, historically would say he's just a bit of a dick. <laughs> you know, but... but in, the, in his mind, there has to be something psychologically wrong with him for him to be doing this as opposed to just morally doing things which are, are not acceptable. How do you go about helping people delineate between psychological disorders and bad behaviour? Yeah, look, to me, there's a, I would say not easily. And in my job, you could raise the question whether bad behaviour is even relevant. Right, so our job is often to explain behaviour and not to make any sort of value judgment on it. And and often around behaviour, certainly in a legal sense, you know, so part of my you know, one of my roles is giving, I guess, opinions for courts. And what they're most interested in is does this person have a set of behaviors that is modifiable if they undertake some sort of treatment? Now that doesn't always completely overlap with a definable mental illness might have kind of sort of limited overlaps you know often it does but so often I see my job as okay so this person's committed a crime they'll have various vulnerabilities psychological and otherwise if I have a if I can give the court a set of instructions a plan that if this person engages in some level of treatment that the likelihood of them committing another act of crime is much lower, that's often what the court is most interested in. And then the the various grey disorders are almost of lower priority, even though you do have to argue them and make a link 
in the in the in the court arena, if you like. So it's a good example. On one level, at a personal level, I would say I'm conflicted. Do I believe in evil, good or bad? There is a part of me that does. I would say. I, I would say I've certainly seen people that while they might have had a bad childhood, etc., whatever it might be, I've certainly seen people that seem to invoke a feeling, whether it could be called evil or whatever it is, but you can certainly feel especially dark. And there, there is a part of me almost uncomfortable with some of the legal work that I do where almost any type of behaviour you can almost explain away and it completely takes away the notion of individual responsibility and the very basis, you know, which is really the very basis of, of our moral structure. And so sometimes that work makes me a little bit uncomfortable where you can psychologize and explain away everything. But I guess the way I justify it is, okay, it's not that people don't need to be punished, but usually when people make improvements to their behavior, there's an element of carrot and stick. So I definitely believe in the stick with a little bit of carrot and, and I guess the justice system is a, is a good place to employ that. This is an unfairly broad question for a relatively short podcast, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You mentioned the notion of evil and, and morality in that sense. Let's go to the classic nature v nurture distinction. When you look at what you see in a respect as being evil, how do you reflect on the way that society has made someone that way compared to the way that they just are innately? Look, to be absolutely frank, the vast majority of cases, you can't help feel sorry for them because, you know, they usually are from a, a disastrous early life in some ways. You know, there's a lot of conflict. They didn't necessarily have you know, stable structures of any kind. But the, the reality is you'll see a variety of people, you know, some people are able to overcome that and don't necessarily commit crimes or poorly, etc. So that's where there are still choices throughout people's life. And, you know, ultimately, you know, you still have to, we're not automatons, you know, we're not just there kind of just as machines primed. And so you can still make cho choices and you can still have free will. And that's where I think there is overlap with, I guess, a moral view of life more generally, whether you're religious or not. It, it is relevant when you consider that 10 different people with similar experiences may well make 10 different choices, you know, when they're exposed to some sort of event. So that's where, regardless of how technical you are, you know, how scientific I am, I can't help see a moral dimension, you know, to life in general. That's interesting. I will pause there to remind everyone that Tanvir is a regular contributor to The Spectator Australia. Sign up today and you'll get your first month free and it's just $2 a week for the first year of your subscription outrageously good value go to spectator.com.au forward slash join i want to go a bit deeper on a couple of specific chapters in the book the first is a chapter titled angry white men there's been a lot that's been written about the marginalization of the working class and particularly working class white men in the us and the uk the trend has been one explanation for the rise of trump and for the brexit vote have you seen a similar pattern playing out in australia to a lesser extent, I think I think what you're alluding to, I can't remember if I wrote that before Trump was elected or not, but it was certainly in and around the time, angry white men. And I guess I was referring, kind of alluding to white working class patients and that I'd seen and the sense of exclusion 
or disenfranchisement, if you like, that some of them had felt. And often there were people who had some sort of physical injury, could no longer work, and just could not engage with the modern economy in the way. And their loss of identity, their loss of status was often channeled through, you know, all manner of things, whether you call it populism and types of racism or conspiracy theories, all sorts of other types of movements. So that notion, you know, and and the whole Trump rise was very closely linked to that. And I don't need to tell your listeners about that, how this major group in society was almost not listened to. And and beyond listen not listened to, they're almost depicted as somehow privileged, yet they were losing in so many aspects of the economy and society. Look, I guess the key difference in Australia, and I think this is a positive in many respects, is we have a more forgiving welfare state. We are less dependent on manufacturing and, and some of these other jobs. You know, our primary industry is, is much bigger as a percentage of the economy. And so in terms of economy, we're almost a old school economy in some ways. So that probably also has uh, limited our challenges around there. Now, it, it's definitely an issue. And arguably the last election, it was almost the, the um, what's the word, the polar opposite, where it wasn't about white working class women. It was, wasn't about white class, work, working class men. It was about middle class women, professional women, which is almost the twin to the white working class men that we're talking about. So, so they tend to be, if not polar opposites, but they, they're a marker of the different tensions and the fault lines. You know, that appears to be modern fault line of elections today and of politics. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really interesting. The, the other thing which comes out really strongly when you write about this cohort of people is how changing notions of masculinity have impacted the way that they live their lives and, and a difficulty in coming to terms with that. I think you mentioned it very briefly before. Can, can you expand on, on how you've seen that play out? Yeah, look, it is a tough one, isn't it? I think that's one of the, it's one of the biggest issues in society now, how men, men trying to transition to a different economy, a different social organisation, and there's infinite amounts written about this, you know, books by Hannah Rosen, like The End of Men, etc. What what are men for anymore? <laughs> you know, like given we barely need men to reproduce anymore and as manufacturing dies, increasingly there's fewer and fewer jobs when male physical prowess is of significance. So you, you can almost ask the question, go, okay, what, what are men for anymore? But in mental health this comes about, I'm trying to think in a, in a whole range of ways. I mean, one, they're the group least likely to present in mental health. They're far more likely to come through the forensic system like what I mean by that is they're far more likely to commit crimes when they in fact need treatment, which is part of the reason I, I enjoy that, that sort of work. But also it goes beyond that and it's about how do they form an identity, how do they sustain relationships, you know, what's the right way for them to almost assert their maleness, what's a healthy way of doing that. And that's not, it's not an easy question in, in today's world where brawn is not very prized brains are far more substantial than brawn in the modern economy so a lot of traditional aspects of what might be called maleness uh, are overall diminished and you know that certainly presents challenges for all kinds of men i want to to understand and there's no one size fits all 
answer here, but what is a healthy way for men who feel disenfranchised to be able to respond to some of these trends in an age where it feels like men, there are many men, particularly young men who don't know what is expected of them as a society. What are healthy ways to be able to respond to some of these challenges as opposed to maybe some of the unhealthy responses that you would see in your practice every day? Yeah, look, great question, Will. And, and you're right, you can go either way in this sort of setting. You know, when you're distressed, you don't feel like you belong, you don't have a role in life. You know, you could go down the path of substance abuse or your relationships falling over, um, mental health problems, conspiracy theories, you can go to internet rabbit hole. So, so there are a variety of not so healthy options, but, you know, obviously a much healthier option is thinking about, okay, well, how can I still contribute? Can I adapt and learn new skills? Can I not blame the other or the outer? You know, what, you, what you've asked actually overlaps with, you know, very, the very original questions you asked. You know, part of the notion of fragile nation is if we interpret our distress as coming from outside of us, then that's a classic overlap with, with identity politics where, you know, at a, at, a, at a root level, any distress you feel in identity politics is automatically the fault of, of the power structure or of a different group. And, you know, that's, you know, that's extremely problematic. Whereas a healthy way is going, okay, well, look, that I don't, it's not to suggest societal structures aren't significant, but any person that presents to me, part of my job is to go, okay, what's modifiable? What is more related to you as an individual? There, there will be societal and wider aspects, which certainly in a consultation room, you'll have a limited ability to impact. I mean, part of my reason for even writing and getting involved in public commentary is exactly that, that I was interested in contributing to the broader public policy discussions that overlap directly with the patients I saw. But often when I, in terms of my treatment with the patients, often I have limited powers. You know, I can prescribe a drug or I can talk to them, et cetera, and that can still be very powerful, but it still has very limitations when the I guess the origins might lie lie in, in systemic arenas. There's there's the separate but related question of the search for meaning today. And I think if you look at that cohort of people, I think a lot of them are struggling with with how do they find meaning in their lives when say traditional notions of what it means to be a man are changing. And also when traditional religion is on the decline in most of the Western world. In fact, in, in the book, you point to a few different things which are almost proxies for religious transcendence today, from alternative medicines to, to identity politics groups. This, this is the broader thing. When It's very hard to suddenly, you know, sometimes conservative groups go too far and go, yeah, we need to go back to, you know, the 50s of, you know, we're all in churches, we're religious, we do this, and it's a Sunday roast with, with a kind of religious family, this sort of stuff. We're not going to easily go back to that type of scenario. But at the same time, that scenario tells you many of the things people need, and that is often, you know, connection, some level of community, some level of structure, and that doesn't have to come from religion or whatever else. But you almost have to try harder in that type of setting where you don't have a ready access to more traditional community, you know, like religion, et cetera. Now, meaning doesn't have to come from religion. 
you know, often look at a psychiatrist, often you're, but what I tell people is we probably overthink meaning, like just merely having something that you feel is useful. Often that's enough in terms of a work point of view. And then you need a handful of close relationships, either it's intimacy in the form of a partner, but even if you don't have that, you can still have quite close uh, intimate relationships. Uh, and this is where there's this notion of, of a healthy adulthood requires what's called love and work, that you have close intimate relationships and that you're engaged in what's known as purposeful activity. So you're doing some sort of activity, doesn't have to be paid, could it be volunteering, could be parenting, you know, it could be linked to schooling or manner of things. That is a type of purposeful activity. And the combination of that and loving relationships is ultimately what gives people meaning. Uh, yes, people pursue all ma- manner of other things. You know, it could be more traditional religion. It could be, you know, it could be podcasts, whatever it is. It could be, could be all manner of things that you find as a way of contributing and, and connecting. And there is definitely something in Western society. There's a yearning for the what one might be called transcendence. There's a yearning for myth as a way of explaining the world, and and by that I mean stories, stories that might seem fanciful for us, but still seem to communicate some level of meaning. There's a big demand for community. We know that, and and often that's quite dynamic, but often, but unfortunately, quite flimsy. But this way, I think the notion of meaning, you know, which is a, which is a loose word. In my experience, life doesn't have to be that complicated. If you feel like you're doing something useful and helping other people in some way, just that alone gives you the foundations of a meaningful life. I do really like that because it's a very practical way of approaching it. If people are searching for this vague notion of meaning, chances are they'll never get there because they don't know what that ends up looking like. It's a very kind of just a a vague nebulous term. Love and work, there are very practical things you can do to get closer to those things. And often that's our job, at least in my work, to sort of go, Look, don't, you you don't actually need to you know contemplate the universe and stuff all the time to get to a happier place. And often the happiest people are the people you know least thinking about this sort of stuff. But they've got strong relationships. They're connected to their communities. They do some sort of work that is useful, you know. And you can do almost anything. You can do all manner of things, you know. Like you know, some of the happiest people I know are like little old ladies who you know knit scarves for their grandkids and their friends and stuff, you know, and they feel a sense of joy and connectedness and feel they contribute. So it sometimes doesn't take much. Um, mm. But the combination of purposeful activity, what we could call work, and some sort of emotional connection with at least a handful of people, you know, that's enough to get, get by. Yeah, really interesting. I want to turn to a different topic. I want to turn to multiculturalism because obviously given your background and given the people that you speak to every day, you see the way that different cultures are coming together in this melting pot within Australia. Do you think multiculturalism has been a success or a failure in Australia? Uh, look, overall, I would say a success. And, and the key reason we've been a success as we're, as we're very picky about our migrants overall and many of the challenges we've had in migration usually overlap with the arenas where we, we've been less picky. So it might have been refugee groups or et cetera. But even then, we've been overly quite successful and our problems have been relatively limited. And and a lot of other countries around the world will look at Australia and go, yes, you've had its success, but you're just super picky with your migrants, which to some extent is true. And some people say, well, you haven't been terribly responsible as a 
kind of wealthy, kind of one of the wealthiest countries in the world, taking in more people who won't automatically be able to contribute to our economy. So that you know, that's an argument for a different debate. But overall, I do think Australia is one of the most successful, diverse, and tolerant societies in the world. But we've had a unique model. When you look at Europe and and other parts of the world, you can still argue bringing in lots of different groups of people is positive and largely success. But I think in many parts of Europe in particular, they're just a large groups of immigrants that have struggled to integrate. They'll often have higher crime levels. And I guess in Europe, a lot of people from North Africa and the like. So going excessively to multiculturalism, and, you know, the deeper philosophical meaning of multiculturalism is that you have different cultures and you can let them live by their different value systems. I think that is definitely a problem. And, you know, we began our conversation with terrorism. The terrorism stuff absolutely overlaps with the failures of multiculturalism because underneath acts of terrorism are this notion of we live in a diverse society, what I think is legitimate, even though it's harmful to my society, and I'm a victim of my society, even though I get given all these sort of privileges, and somehow historical injustice is some sort of justification of bad behaviour or trying to relegate other groups, you know, that becomes a justification. And that I think that's really problematic. The elephant in the room of the multiculturalism debate is that it is well, it is accepted to celebrate every ethnic or cultural group with one exception, and that is the white or Anglo-Saxon ethnic group. If people were to come out in, in the media today and say, I'm proud to be white or I'm proud to, to have an Anglo-Saxon heritage, it would be considered to be a very divisive thing to say. You quote a conservative thinker, Ryan Salam, who said that because that that option has been denied to white ethnic people, they're reduced to celebrating ideological causes, free speech, rule of law, that sort of thing, which have been stripped from any cultural content. Is that a problem? Um, to some extent. I think that's where a lot of these debates around white supremacy, etc. free speech does sometimes become a proxy, you know, because you can't, you can't outwardly sort of go, oh, you know what, I'm an Anglo-Saxon, I have these traditions, and I'm really proud of these traditions, and, I have, and they have this sort of history. So automatically that in modern discourse has almost a racist edge to it. So that's why often celebrations around free speech or protests around it do have this deeper aspect where even though the arguments around it seem relatively, what's the word, free of cultural baggage in the same way, they do become a proxy for almost, if not Anglo-Saxon supremacy, at least a notion of what that tradition and what that culture and what that history can be exceptionally proud of, but almost unable to speak of. There's another thread here in this cultural conversation, and it's come out very strongly in the voice debate that we are having at the moment. That is the concept of historic guilt. So I would suggest that historic guilt is a reason many Australians will end up voting yes in the upcoming referendum. Curious to get your thoughts on this uh, from a psychological, psychiatric perspective. How do you think about the concept of psyche of historic guilt? It's a tough one, isn't it? I find it hard at a group level. When I say patients, I think at a family level, it, it is significant. And, and 
where this whole notion comes about is from Jewish groups and the Holocaust and this idea of transgenerational transmission of trauma. And there is something in that without question. But again, it, it, it can go too far and it just diminishes the role of, of an individual. You know, we're obviously connected to our past and even generationally, you know, that can have a big impact. And you think of Aboriginal groups like Stolen Generation, et cetera. Like it's unquestionable that, that someone born even two, three generations later is connected to that and affects their identity. Whether that's automatically traumatic or not, I think is is up for up for question. But I think where historical injustice just goes too far is where essentially people who deserve no penalty. I mean, the classic one is in the gender debates these days, where you'll have often middle class women receive privileges over white working class men based on some notion of historical injustice, and that's a new type of injustice. So I think setting up any sort of policy around historical injustice usually invites a more present injustice, usually invites a, a new forms of injustice that are far more immediate. Mm, that makes sense. I've got two questions to finish, and it goes to what I would say, I'm perhaps oversimplifying your profession, but it goes to the root of what you try and do, which is to try and make people happier. You've been a psychiatrist for, what is it, over 20 years now? Uh, about 15, close to 15. 15, a long time. Do you think we've become more or less happy as a society since you started your career? Tough one. I guess there's various measures of it. We've become more concerned about the notion of happiness. And I guess I'd challenge you, not so much challenge, but I'd clarify that my job is not necessarily to make people happy. And, you know, there's a famous Freud quote. He says, look, my job is to take people away from kind of pathological versions of distress to common unhappiness, right? So often my job is to help people function better in work and relationships by reducing the level of their psychological symptoms. Now, that may be a path to what's called happiness, but, I mean, happiness is in a clinical term, so... I can't easily measure it, but usually it's not always necessarily that people are happier then, although often they are, but they are often more functional and they might be in less distress. So, so that's often our, our role in psychiatry and psychology. But, but you are right at a cultural level, there's almost a bigger pressure on the notion of happiness and because it's such a loose term, it overlaps with that notion of psychological harm and gives it more room to be exploited in public debates, uh, and that's often the case. But I do think we we can be, what's the word, mindful that policy should be geared to, I guess, what might be called gross national happiness, et cetera. But it, that's usually subjective. It's very difficult to measure. And it has huge overlaps with a whole range of contributors that go beyond you know, what we can control. It goes far beyond you know, public policy, et cetera. So that's why we need to be wary of the happiness debates. You know, say with the Labor Party, well-being has become a big term, well-being budgets, et cetera, and that overlaps strongly with these debates around happiness. But there's a lot to be wary about there, and sometimes you, you can almost become a bit tyrannical and sort of go, okay, you have to be happy, et cetera. 
um, whether it's in the workplace or out elsewhere. So I'd be very, I'd be very wary of wading into debates around happiness, especially in the public policy realm. Mm, I think there's another whole podcast episode on on that particular topic, but we are we are running out of time, Tanvir. Fragile Nation is a brilliant book. I, I'd recommend it to anyone that wants to understand the psychological factors that are driving some of the tectonic shifts in society today. Uh, and you know, to your great credit, it's written in the most wonderfully warm and funny style. Congratulations on on the book. I think you know you wrote it a few years ago now, but if anything, it is more relevant today when you did write it. You can, of course, also catch Tanvir's writing in The Spectator Australia. Mate, thank you very much for coming on Australiana today. Pleasure, Will. I'm also a columnist of the Financial Review. So for your listeners that read that. Go out and get your Spectator Australia subscription first. And then if you have any cash left over, please go and sign up for the AFR. Thanks, Tanvir. <laughs> Pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me on, Will. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.